Genesis chapter 34. Mankind has always struggled to believe in God. It is in our nature to rebel against our maker and refuse his natural fatherhood. Romans 1 tells us that all men are without excuse because all men know deep down that there is a God, but we refuse to acknowledge him. Understandably, though, many struggle to embrace God due to hard, unanswered questions. The most famous of all arguments against the existence of God is what we know as the problem of evil. The problem of evil. Have you ever heard that term, that phrase? The problem of evil. If there's a good God who is merciful and sovereign over all existence and all the world and all the universe, then where did evil come from? Why did God allow evil to happen? And the, ir- the irony in asking that question, as we're unsure of God's existence because of evil, is that we ask it absolutely certain that evil exists. We know without a shadow of a doubt that there is evil in the world, right? And not only do we know that evil exists, but evil itself is a problem. We talk about the problem of evil as it relates to God, but evil itself is the problem that we ought to also answer. We know it exists. We know it's a problem. Therefore, we make some basic moral inferences about good and bad, right and wrong, righteous, unrighteous, good and evil. The very fact that we know evil is evil is proof that there is a God whose moral law is written on our hearts and our minds that teaches us right and wrong. There is evil in the world. No one would object to that truth. I don't have to convince anyone here this morning that evil exists. So instead of trying to answer the question about evil in God's world, let's deal with the real problem first. God is not the problem. Evil is the problem. It's in our world. It's in our country, our nation. It's in our community. It's even in our homes. At some point, we have to stop questioning God about evil and look to Him for answers about how to respond to evil. We can be philosophical and think and ponder all day long about metaphysical realities and God's foreknowledge before the foundations of the world, but until we get practical with our daily response to the problem of evil in the world, we aren't really accomplishing much in our lives. Evil exists. Now what? What do we do with that? There's evil in the world. The biblical Greek word for evil is kakos. It's used 50 times in the New Testament. It's an adjective that describes an inner rottenness. It's like a poison that corrupts a tree in in the inside of it, right? From the roots, from the trunk, uh, working within to make the whole tree die. Poisoned, right? It's a moral decay that leads to death. Evil is the inner workings of sin in someone's life or even a group of people that leads to destruction. Evil is the overall agenda of sin and Satan. Evil is the problem 
in all of us and all of the people around us. It is a severe spiritual poison that none of us can hide from. We have practiced evil. We have experienced the consequences, byproducts, sufferings because of evil. Evil is the world that we live in as it is literally entranced by a snare of the devil, the evil one. We cannot escape it. So what do we do? We prepare for it. We prepare for it, right? In our text today, Jacob and his family were not prepared for evil. As a result, they did not respond well when evil came into their camp. Chapter 34 is a hard chapter that begins a transition. Every chapter is transitioning, transitioning, right? Next thing, next thing. It's trying to get us to Joseph. But what it's showing in the meantime is that there is a serious mess going on in the family. The 12 tribes that are coming out of this family. It's, it's, it's a mess. And, and the next few chapters also show us a genealogy, the family tree, the big picture of where we're headed and where we're going. But this chapter gives us an explanation for why Jacob, before his death, uh, gives Simeon and Levi a cursing rather than a blessing. All the other children get blessings. Simeon and Levi get cursings, and we find out why in chapter 34. I also want to give you a warning, as I've referenced in, in prayers and comments, right? This passage of Scripture is full of evil. And as much as we might want to, we can't hide it away from our own minds, right? We can't hide it from our children. We can't skip over chapter 34. But this is an adult conversation. There are some hard topics here. You may have to have some follow-up conversations when you get home if you have young people. And I'm not going to get into great detail, uh, but I would encourage you to just rely on God's Word and trust God's Word and trust the process of the preaching of God's Word. Mentally prepare for however you need to prepare. You, you just read it with me, right? This is hard. And this is what I have to preach. Our response to outrageous acts of wickedness must not be a quiet affiliation with evil, nor a zealous rage, nor apathy, but rather a God-honoring pursuit of justice, truth, and victory that is above reproach. And the text this morning gives us three don'ts and one do. Three don'ts and one do in how we respond to evil. I was going to try to do all four of them today, and that is not going to happen. So we're just going to do the first two don'ts. We'll get one more don't next week and another do. Right? The first do. So the first two don'ts are don't be affiliated with evil and don't be apathetic. Don't be affiliated with evil and don't be apathetic. Look at verses 1 through 4 again. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my 
wife. Who is Dinah? The text tells us here she is the daughter of Leah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob. Notice how she's not presented as Jacob's one and only daughter, which she was. Eleven children, one girl born from Leah, the last before Joseph. But from the very beginning, Moses is setting the scene that this is Leah's daughter. Because Jacob's not treating her like his daughter. Dinah had six full blood brothers. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. Simeon and Levi, however, assume responsibility to take care of her, it seems like, in this chapter. Probably because of Jacob's failure to take care of his daughter as he was ordained by God to do. We've already seen Jacob's partiality learned from his parents, Rebecca and Isaac. How he lined up the children as they approached war by his favorites last week. And it was up to the brothers then to provide and protect their sister. We find out that evidently Dinah did not like being the only girl around the camp. Apparently it gets kind of old hanging out with your mom and three stepmoms, right? Uh, after a while. Well, one of them's her aunt as well, right? Uh, as much fun as that was every day, it got old. They were settling in Shechem. Dinah began to explore and meet the native women. As the text says, she wandered off into the land. And the only other time that phrase is used of the, the women here is when Rebekah tells Jacob to leave Canaan, forbidding him to marry one of the women of the land. There was a clear separation between God's people and pagans already forming. They were not to intermarry. They certainly should not be influencing one another. This was more dangerous than Dinah realized as she went off to get to know the natives. Then we meet the prince of the land, as he's called. His name is Shechem, the son of Hamor. Hamor, from the last chapter, was the man who Jacob purchased land from as they began to settle outside of Shechem. Evidently, Hamor is like the king. He's the big dude, the governor, the mayor, whatever you want to call him, of the land, the region. He has a son. That son's name was Shechem, who's so entitled that the town was named after him. Prince Shechem, who lived in Shechem. He was the prince of the land, whatever he wanted. He got. So one day, Prince Shechem sees Dinah in one of her wandering journeys, and evil took over. Shechem saw her. He seized her. He lay with her. He humiliated her. This is rape. The text makes it clear Shechem sexually assaulted Jacob's daughter without any semblance of consent. The prince of the land disregarded the life of a young woman, the second youngest of all of Jacob's children, humiliating her, violently abducting her, taking her for himself. The word humiliated there at the end means to bow down in depression, affliction, and sorrow leaving her mourning with a grief unlike any other earthly grief. 
for what this man had done. He presumed his entitlement to all property of the land, including life itself. This was evil. And like all evil, it attempts to justify itself with many words. Shechem says that his soul loved her. He spoke tenderly to her. And then he goes to dad and he says, get me this girl for my wife because I love her. And daddy was king, right? Able to get anything for his prince. I believe this was nothing more than a cover up for what Shechem had done. His clear abuse of power and sexual deviancy was now trying to be hidden. We know that love does not force sexual advances on another human being. Let me just say for anyone hearing this today who maybe has been in a compromising situation in the past in this kind of manner, I am so sorry. We are so sorry. This is one of the worst forms of evil on the earth. It's horrific. It's disgusting. It is unjust. And the church will not stand for it. And no Christian should stand for it. God will not stand for it. Take courage that Dinah is protected by God in this passage, even though God is not even mentioned in the entire chapter. Not once is the Lord referenced. But we know the Lord takes thought for her. And even though you've encountered evil in some of the worst forms, God cares for you. There is healing and there is comfort in Christ. Who would want to be on the same list of names as a guy like Shechem? Hopefully none of us. Scripture is clear that we are not to have anything to do with evildoers. We are not to be affiliated with any kind of evil. We talked about this chapter after chapter in the book of Genesis. And it's clearer more than ever right here in chapter 34. God is telling us loud and clear to stay away from evil. There is no way that this was Dinah's fault. But Dinah should not have been wandering in evil places. Dinah is not responsible for what happened to her. Being raped by a worthless man hell-bent on sexual power and tyranny is not Dinah's fault. Shechem and Shechem alone has to stand before God for his actions. However, Dinah should not have been flirting with evil. She, had not, she should not have been with the women of the land. They were not safe. They were not a good influence. Our first response to evil is to not flirt with it. Because most likely, that's what our flesh is going to want to do. Why is sin hard? Because we like it. Right? If sin was not enjoyable, nobody would sin. If there was not a gratifying desire from the flesh to sin, this would not be a problem. When we see evil, we have to first recognize that we are likely to fall prey to it. We are likely to be tempted by it. 
Why, why, that's why we pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. Deliver us because we are prone to it. Evil is attractive. Thankfully, we have passages like this in chapter 34 where we can see evil's ugly face. And we learn not to desire it because it destroys us. It destroys people. It destroys homes. It destroys families. Sin is trying to constantly get us on the path of evil. Sin is alluring, tempting. It is temporarily pleasurable. It is attractive. But as it is, we must not, we must not love evil. We must stay away from it. We must run from it. Not only evil in a broad category, but specifically this text draws out for us sexual deviancy of all kinds are particularly grievous against God and His throne. We've heard it said recently from a number of preachers, maybe you've heard this quote, that the Bible whispers about sexual sins. Is there anything in Genesis chapter 34 that you interpret as a whisper? This is heinous. This is loud. This is shouting to us from the rooftops. Stay away from sexual sins. It is deadly. It is ugly. It kills people. Sexual sins are evil. Sexual sins will devour your life and take away any conscience you have regarding the lives of others. Sexual sins cause you to see other people as body parts and objects rather than souls made in the image of God. Evil takes over if you let it through sexual deviancy. If you are struggling in this area, you need to tell someone now before it's too late. Tell me. Tell any member of this church. If you are watching pornography regularly, if you are publicly lusting, if you have ever had the impulse to assault another human being because of your sexual urges, you need to stop it. You need to cut it off. Cut off your, cut off your, your hand. Gouge out your eyes. It will destroy you. It will destroy your life. It will destroy the lives of others. Which is why Paul says blatantly in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. We say all sin is sin. That's true. But sexual sin is unlike any other sin. You defile yourself. And your body is good, made by God to be served by God, for God. And, and we see the use of the word defiled here in this passage. Dinah, it says, was left defiled by Shechem, right? Right? who is an unwilling participant, who had nothing to do with this. But she was the one who was left defiled. 
Beloved, how much worse for us who defile ourselves through sexual immorality, who do this willingly. Don't flirt with evil. Run far away. Secondly, do not be apathetic toward evil. Do not be apathetic toward evil. Verse 5. Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. So Jacob hears, gets word of this. Can you imagine fathers in the room hearing about what happened from who knows where? Not from the sons, not from anyone else in his family. One of your youngest children, your daughter, was molested and raped by a political figure in the community. Some argue for Jacob's goodwill here that he was holding his peace until the brothers came so they could sort of discuss this all together. In other words, he was holding back tears. He was holding back his grief until they all came together. Perhaps, maybe, he thought it was too dangerous to go to Shechem himself with such an allegation without finding out if it was true. These arguments have been made. Maybe it's just because I'm a new dad, but I call baloney. I call baloney. If I heard something like that, I would drop whatever I was doing (laughs) and find out the bottom of this immediately, right? But Jacob waits, and he waits for his sons to come in. And it's not clear until later in the passage, but by the way, Dinah doesn't come home. She stays in Shechem's house as a hostage until the end of the passage. And so the offense rises as Dinah has not only been humiliated, but now she's captive in the king's palace. And what does Jacob do? He doesn't do anything. But his sons became very angry. I think that's a contrast on purpose. They go out in the field. Hamor wants to go and talk to Jacob, right? But the sons get there first. They talk. They were livid. They were angry. They were longing for justice, for retribution. They wanted to go and rescue their sister immediately. The same is not said about Jacob. The sons were angry. doesn't say how Jacob felt. It makes me wonder how Jacob might have reacted if it was Joseph. Rachel's only son who is in this situation. Verse 7 says that Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel. An outrageous thing. That phrase is only used two other times in the Old Testament. One time in Joshua chapter 7 and another time in Judges chapter 20. 
Joshua 7, after Rahab the prostitute saves the spies in Jericho, the walls come tumbling down, Israel wins. What do they do? They plunder the people in the land and they take the devoted things. And then they go and fight the battle of Ai and they lose. And the Lord makes sure that they lose. And he says, you will continue dying against anybody you face until you get rid of these devoted things because you've done an outrageous thing. The next one is Judges chapter 20. Judges chapter 19, perhaps an even more disturbing passage than this one. There's a traveling Levite who goes through the territory of Benjamin, comes to the city of Gibeah. He stops to stay the night with his concubine. And like the people of Sodom, the locals press hard against the house to defile them sexually. They end up sexually abusing his concubine all night long outside of the home until she's found dead the next morning. The Levite then decides to cut up her body and send it throughout the 12 tribes of Israel as a symbol of the outrageous thing that took place. It was an outrageous thing that Benjamin has done. Judges chapter 19 is an outrageous, despicable chapter of Scripture. And when we feel the disgust from reading it, that ought to hit us equally hard in reading Genesis 34. This is an awful, 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 awful thing that should not have happened. This thing must not have been done. Such a thing must never happen. It is evil. It is wicked. We will not be apathetic. We refuse to stand for it. And then Shechem's dad shows up. Bad timing. Hamor is out in the field. Jacob and his sons. He knows what his son did. Hamor must think he's pretty untouchable to go before 12 grown men who just heard that his son violated their daughter and sister. But he's the king. He thinks highly of himself. He can go and get Dinah for his son's Wife, he says, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Again, I think this is a cover-up. Hamor does not even mention the crime that took place or begin to apologize for anything. He goes further. He says, why don't you make marriages with us? Give us all your daughters. We'll give you our daughters too and we'll come together. His entitlement stretches beyond woman, one woman to all the women of Israel. Everything Hamor has... Uh, Everything Hamor has said to them has been ridiculous, unworthy of serious consideration. But the last request is the most shameful of them all. He says, name your price. Apparently Shechem's there. He shows up and he says, I'll pay whatever you want for Dinah. If it's money that's the problem, what's the bride price? They don't know who they're trifling with. Then we read in verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who's circumcised for that would be a disgrace for us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you 
and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. They answered deceitfully. Literally, the sons of Jacob, the deceiver, answered deceitfully. And again, where's Jacob? I don't know. The sons are talking now, right? Jacob doesn't say one word to Hamor. He appears to have left. He's not advocating for his precious daughter who Shechem thinks he can just purchase. And even though the text says the sons of Jacob, we can assume that Simeon and Levi were kind of spearheading this project because they're the ones that get out the swords at the end of the chapter. Those two are the ones in charge. Their zeal is dangerous, I think, but at least they aren't apathetic like their dad. They are willing to do whatever it takes to get Dinah back. They choose to deceive the Shechemites with a false treaty. Why, the text tells us? Because they had defiled their sister. The plan went something like this. They said, um, we would have to require circumcision from all your people if we're going to merge camps, which is a pretty good argument, right? Theoretically, if that was going to happen, they would all need to be circumcised according to God's covenant, the sign of His covenant, right? All of Israel, all of Jacob and his children were circumcised. But this isn't real, right? They say they want to merge camps, But really, after they are circumcised and recovering after three days, their plan is to ambush them and at the very minimum save Dinah and get her out of there. But it turns out to be much, much more. Not a bad plan, but here's some things we need to consider. What was their end goal? It's not clear. These verses are kind of hard. What what they really wanted to achieve, we don't know. We know they were deceitful on purpose, and it was because Dinah was defiled, and they wanted to get Dinah back, and they were after some form of justice. Did they plan to kill and plunder the town? I don't know at this point. Was that just Simeon and Levi? I don't know. Maybe the slaughter wasn't on the agenda, but when they saw their sister in Shechem's bedroom, their rage might have taken over. In that day, we do know what ended up happening, which is the murder of every man and plundering of every woman and child and taking of all their possessions. But we don't know what their initial goal was. I believe their zeal to protect and to defend their sister was good, but it seems that their zeal was blinding them from thinking this through and establishing what the end goal was actually supposed to be. If it was Dinah's rescue, that's one thing. If it was to be God themselves and an act of judgment as the Almighty, that is another thing entirely. The second thing to observe here is they, they, they really are blasphemous towards the sign of the covenant, circumcision, right? This is problematic. This was a sign of their covenant with God. And again, theoretically, if they were going to merge camps, circumcision was a good idea. But they should not have merged camps in the first place. This was never really on the table. Using the sign of God's covenant to deceive the Shechemites was probably blasphemous, if not very inappropriate at the least. What's even more shocking, though, is how quick the Shechemites are to accept the covenant and to 
circumcise themselves as a sign of a covenant with a God whom they do not know. The equivalent of being baptized without being born again. They don't know what they're doing. Blaspheming God's will. And finally, there's the idea of using deceit in order to achieve justice and rescue Dinah. We've learned over and over and over again in Genesis that we can't use sinful means to obtain God's promises. We can't tell Pharaoh she's our sister, right? We, we, we can't use Hagar as a surrogate when her womb is barren. We can't bribe our brother for a birthright. These are examples that we've learned over and over again of being led by fear into a mode of self-preservation and lying no matter the consequences. God hates that. God is not glorified by that. However, I think this example is different. You might disagree with me. Many commentators do. And I'm still learning through this. But I think there may be times where deceit can be lawfully used as a means of protecting God's people and securing God's worship. It seems weird to say that out loud, doesn't it? But here's what I mean. Deceit is warfare. Satan seeks to deceive us, telling us God will not surely uh, give his wrath to us if we take the fruit. We won't surely die, tempting us with twisting scripture. But consider this, Satan is not omniscient. Satan does not know your next move. Satan has no idea what you're going to do next or what God is going to do next. So why would we tell him? So why would we tell him? Why would we hide the will of the righteous? Why would we not hide the will of the righteous from the enemy, from the evil, the evildoer? Right? When we go to war, we use camo suits for a reason. This is not a matter of fear of man and self-preservation. Shots have been fired. You defiled our sister. We're not going to tell you the plan. A good spy doesn't go into the camp and say, Oh, you got me. I'm a spy. Right? I think their zeal was good, but the strategy missed the mark. Shots were fired, and they were going to fight back. Deceit, let me say it clearly, just in case I might have confused you. Deceit used against a brother is always sin. No doubt about it. You lie to your brother, God hates it, God is not glorified, it is sinful. Right? If you withhold information from the enemy of the church, I'm not sure that that's necessarily sin. Deceit used against the enemy for practical, strategic, and smart advances for God's kingdom and protecting God's chosen ones is good. And I believe this came from a God-honoring place of zeal. The whole point here is that we cannot be apathetic toward evil. We cannot be apathetic toward evil. This applies universally and it applies personally. This applies to the world this applies to the church. We cannot sit idly by as evil spreads like wildfire in our midst. This is not a matter of politics, conscious, uh, or conscience, or biblical interpretation. All Christians must hate evil. 
whether it's state-sanctioned or evil done directly to you and to your household. You must hate it. It is good for you to hate it. We know that the fear of the Lord is the what? Beginning of wisdom. It's on our church sign. Right? We've got all that memorized. Do you also have Proverbs 8 memorized? Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, says the Lord. Psalm 97.10. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. You love the Lord, you hate evil. He preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Brothers and sisters, there are sins of commission, sins of omission. You ever heard that phrase? We can sin by doing something or we can sin by doing nothing. If we don't hate evil, God's word says that is sinful. We are to hate what is evil, abhor what is evil, and love what is good. And what is it that God hates? Proverbs 6, again, Proverbs tells us, there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run, make haste to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, one who sows discord among the brothers. Do you hate haughty eyes, prideful people? Do you hate lying tongues? Do you hate hands that shed innocent blood? Do you hate the hearts that devise wicked plans? Do you hate feet? That are fast after evil. Do you hate false witnesses? Do you hate the one who sows discord among the brothers? There are very few times that I will stand before you with God's word open on this pulpit and tell you to fill your heart with hatred. But this is one of those times. Hate evil. Don't be apathetic towards it. Don't turn a blind eye towards it. Don't close your eyes and go about your business living your happy Christian life. Hate it. Don't stand for it. Hate it. This is what God's word beckons us to do. Hate it in our own lives. Hate it outside of ourselves. Hate it in the world. Pray for God to deliver us from it. To go to the New Testament, after we've been in the Old Testament all this time, we're just going to have to do the rest next week. As I said... We remember a scene in Matthew chapter 15 when the Pharisees were questioning Jesus and his disciples. And they said, why aren't your disciples washing their hands, right? Why aren't your disciples uh, honoring their father and mother? Why are they leaving and going and doing all of these things? Why aren't they obeying the Sabbath? Why aren't they doing X, Y, Z? And they accused them of breaking the tradition of the elders. These men were overly concerned with an outward display of righteousness and not as concerned with the true nature of man. What is the true nature of man? Our hearts are desperately wicked who can know it. We have inherited the evil of our father Adam. The Pharisees wanted to keep the outside of the cup clean while the inside remained dirty. So what does Jesus say to the crowd there? He says, it is not what comes out or what goes into a man, what you eat, 
that defiles him, but rather what comes out of a man. He says to his disciples, verse 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles, defiles again, right? That word, a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Beloved, we are a part of the problem of evil. Evil exists because we exist. Right? Warning about all the external evils of the world will only do us so much good. We have to know how to respond to it. But even then, we cannot respond unless we deal with the inside of the cup. This was the fallacy of the Pharisees' teaching, right? They worshiped God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. Ultimately, we have to acknowledge before God that our hearts are evil, wicked. They pour out all kinds of awful things. We are defiled not by what we do, but what comes out of our mouths. Our hearts are what defile us before God. Out of our hearts come all kinds of evil. This is why we must be born again. We must have our hearts circumcised. This is only possible through Christ and through Christ alone, through His death and His resurrection. He went to a defiling tree, a cursed tree of crucifixion, to bear our sins in His body, though He was sinless, undefiled, perfect, spotless, right? The Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And He rose from the dead so that we, who were found guilty and defiled in His sight, might be purified, cleansed, made righteous through believing on His death and resurrection. We can have our evil taken away and then be empowered to respond rightly when evil comes back. When it comes back in our own lives, when it comes back around us. The Holy Spirit empowers us now through believing on the gospel and Jesus' purified life that we can respond to evil appropriately. Because he died on the defiled tree. Through his death and through his resurrection, Peter tells us, That even though we defile ourselves in this body of flesh and we see the defilement of this earth, there is laid up for us in heaven an inheritance that is undefiled, blameless, pure, as if we deserved it. And we don't. Evil people don't get undefiled inheritances, right? But Christ, the sinless one who died for evil people, has finally, once and for all, fixed the problem of evil by taking it away completely, dying to have evil removed, rising from the dead to have evil removed. And Lord willing, next week, through the power of the cross, through the gospel, we'll talk about not only how we don't respond to evil, but how we do respond to it, how we do respond to it, how we abhor what is evil. And how we love what is good. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. 
I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.